0: This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live show devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they're associated with vulnerability or shame, fear, or just lots of discomfort. Uh, Tonight's show is part of an ongoing series about dreams, and we're going to be focusing this evening on dreams and grieving. My guest is Laura Mazikowski. Laura is a psychotherapist here in practice in Portland. She was recently a board member at the Jung Center in Brunswick and has led dream groups both in person and online. Welcome to Safe Space, Laura. Thank you. I were You know, we're talking tonight about grief, and um, so I want to start by hearing the story of your grief and the man that you were grieving.
1: Okay. Um, well, the person that I was grieving... Um, and, in some ways, still am grieving um, is uh, my brother, who is um, about four years younger than I am and um, about uh, it was about four years ago um, he five years ago actually that he was diagnosed with leukemia and um, over the process of his, you know a long process of him being sick and the suddenness of it, of it all and us learning about his um, illness. uh, He actually went into remission. And then um, about a year later, after he was initially diagnosed, and then after being in remission, he relapsed and was diagnosed actually with the same leukemia, but it had crossed. it It was more complicated the second time around because it was actually in his brain. And they thought that they had cured it, and they no longer found that it was cured. Um, so um, uh, that was um, that was an especially hard time. Once he went into relapse, because we realized the seriousness of it, and um, and we were all very very frightened at that time. So you know, it was my younger brother, a young man with a family, a small daughter and a wife and beloved son and and brother and friend so that's that's who i'm talking about tonight Mm -hmm.
0: so i imagine part of the process was just not even believing that it could even be
1: happening it was so shocking initially you know when we i remember getting the call um from my sister that he um was in the hospital and that he most likely had leukemia. It happened very suddenly on the onset, so it was um, very shocking and surprising. And he lived 10 hours away from me, so in Buffalo, New York, where I grew up, but I've I've lived in Portland for many years now. So um, the shock, you know, so I'm hearing it on the phone. My father was across the country, you know we were all kind of dispersed and it was it was very shocking and difficult to integrate. It wasn't really till I was actually there with him um because I went there right away as soon as I heard that uh i start it really started to sink in about what was entailed and what 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 would happen for him i mean initially, he was actually told that you know the likelihood of his recovering from this leukemia was very high. And so we were very, actually very hopeful. We knew it would be a very trying time, but um, I think we all felt really confident that he would make it through it and ultimately be okay. So shock initially, but, and, and concern for him and what he had to go through, all of the treatment, um, the long-term hospitalization and uh, chemotherapy treatment. But, but ultimately this feeling of like, we'll get through this Right, so you started out with confidence and hope and mm-hmm.
0: right. And um, you know, we're talking tonight about grieving and mm-hmm. I'm I'm sensing too that as it became clear after you heard about his relapse that the mm-hmm. grieving doesn't start after you lose somebody, but I'm guessing there was mm-hmm. a lot of grief as it started to look more and more like oh. there wasn't going to be yeah, the outcome you'd hoped for. Yeah.
1: That's when things really started shifting um and the true—I mean, I would—I would say the the real deep grieving, where it felt more—I don't know how to say this—I guess maybe more dire, you know, like the consequences felt really, really dire, um, and the the depth of the grief um, was—it felt stronger. Um, more palpable. It was more present. I was. It, I could feel it. It was just stronger. Right. Yeah. Before he died. Before he died. Right. It started. Yes. And and it was very difficult because, um, you know, I wanted to hope. I wanted to still maintain hope, and and obviously wanted very much for him to live. But the grieving, the anticipatory grief, was very very strong. Mm-hmm. Is there was there a
0: feeling almost of like you're supposed to hope to, because that's supposed to help him? I mean, was there almost this feeling of yeah. conflict
1: inside? Oh yeah. I mean, I struggled because I really wanted to um yeah, I wanted to help him. I mean, I wasn't giving up on him. You know, I, I was with him often and talked with him and encouraged him and tried to motivate him. But also at the same time felt like I needed to be really supportive and real about what he was actually experiencing and what and what I was experiencing you know my fears my 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 real deep fears and I think ultimately that we we shared those fears um and it and it felt like um the, that w- was healing in its own way to be able to share our fears um about him dying. So you, he could talk to you about that before it happened. He could and he did. It took a little while. I mean, um, even right around the time before he was diagnosed, the second time, with the relapse, um, he had started having symptoms and I asked him, Roger, are you afraid? You know, are you afraid that this leukemia is back? It was more about the fear of just having leukemia and what that might mean if it was a relapse, ultimately him dying. But initially he denied it, um, and I just wanted to believe him and (laughs) joined him in believing that it wasn't real. And then when we found out that the leukemia actually was real, uh, the relapse was a real thing, um, several months into it, I think, uh, as we were getting closer to him dying was when he really started to express more of his fears. I would say about a month Prior to he was really struggling, very sick, very um very afraid he was very afraid and and I was very afraid we were, we were all very afraid mm-hmm. and it is so that is a hard thing to admit to you know I felt like I felt like there were some family members who needed to stay like hopeful and you know very much believe in their hearts that it would turn out. That he would make it through a stem cell transplant, that he would live, because because they needed to hold on to that, and I and I also hoped for that, but I also felt like you know, that it was a real possibility that he was going to die.
0: You know, there's the uh, the title of the book escapes me, but I remember reading in medical school. the autobiography of A Man Who Was Dying, and one of the things that he wrote about was was the loneliness Mm. of having these fears and not being able Mm. to talk to people about them because they just kept wanting to reassure him and be positive, and so he couldn't bring that fear to anyone, and I I am feeling so glad for Roger that he could Mm. tell you and that you could receive it.
1: Yeah, it was... um, I think that we... You know, I, I felt very close to him, and, um, I, my sense was, and I think it was more than a sense, but, um, I knew that he trusted me to be able to tell me that I could hear some hard things and, you know, partially being a therapist and he knows that that's what I do. But, but I would ask him, you know, I would ask him directly and, um, ask him like, are you afraid? Ask him or what do you Yeah. Mean? Yeah. I would ask him, how are you feeling? How are you doing? Are you afraid? you know, what's going on with you? Tell me what's going on. Because there was a time where I visited him about a month before he died, where he was very, very sick. They were preparing him for stem cell transplant. And he was very um, distraught and very unsettled. And um, I, I've described it kind of like a, like he was like a ghost, I felt like he was a ghost. He was haunted and I think he was haunted with his fear. And one night we were talking and he told me a dream of his, um, a dream. It was very simple, it was more like a dream image, but very deep and profound. Just that he dreamt that, um, he dreamt of a small, young girl screaming. And, that said everything to me about where he was internally um his deep fear his deep young like the the young fear inside of him and how alone he felt in that because the young girl was alone no one was comforting her so his dream captured what his inner experience was and you could receive mm. it that way yeah yeah, I felt very honored when he told me that because, because I knew how alone he was, and I, my hope was that listening to that dream, just being with him, um, gave him some comfort. Right. So that mm.
0: girl, little girl, <laughs> terrified part of him, didn't have to feel so alone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. It's a safe space. And I'm talking to Laura Mazakowski about dreaming as part of grief. And um, I want to shift now to asking you about a little bit about your dreams. Um, as I know that you have written and spoken about these dreams, and I wondered if you might start by telling me one that happened while he was very ill.
1: Well, you know, actually, I think some of the I think one of the dreams I'd like to share was one that he had one that I had actually after he died. okay, I don't know if that's okay. yeah, um, so in this dream, I'm uh walking into a therapist's office, and I see her, and uh, I know that she is dying. She's in the process of cleaning out her office, and it looks like an herbalist apothecary. She's actually more of a witch than a therapist, it seems, and very much a healer in the ancient women's traditions. So she's going through all of these large glass jars of dried herbs and discarding them, and all of her healing herbs are being disposed of because she has no use for them. Her work is done, and it is her time. I notice that she's emptying out a large jar of dried onion. And then I look and I see on a table a large piece of um, bee's comb, except it's hollowed out without the honey. And she stands over it with a large jar of honey and slowly pours the golden honey back into the comb, back into its, its home. And slow and sweet, the honey flows and the sweetness returning to its original form both the onion and the honey poured out. And that was your dream. That was my dream. Mm. Yeah. So tell me
0: how, you know, I know you work professionally with dreams, but this is your own dream, mm. and it comes at a time that you have so much feeling. How did you sit with that dream? How What did you make of it?
1: Well, This dream actually touched me very, very deeply. I I was very emotional when I um, first told someone the dream. You know, at this time, at the time of my brother's death and throughout this whole process, um, I was part of a dream training group. So we were actively working on our dreams as part of this group. So I had a community that could hold these dreams with me. So when I told this dream, um I cried very deeply. I was very sad. And I think I think that there was something about the bittersweet quality of this dream that is actually, you know, it's symbolized right there with the onion and the honey that was so poignant for me. And um I think I think in some ways it felt very spiritual because the honey, you know, the sweetness of life, my brother's life, is returning to some original place, you know, wherever that is. I don't really know where that is, but it felt like a home, like he was going to some kind of home. And um, in some ways, that felt very comforting to me. It's kind of like my way of understanding that. And, um, and I found it very beautiful, this image felt like such a gift of such beauty, and also captured my um, my own deep sorrow you know um, I don't know if I' necessarily identify with the witch, but you know the witch healer, but I think that there was something about being a therapist and being connected to him and wanting to feel like I could help heal him and and i think ultimately that healing did take place for him but not the kind of healing that's cured you know where he wasn't cured but i think he i think he was um i think he experienced some emotional healing um near the time of his death but um i think also that the dream um speaks to the the real energy like what it took out of me to be with him through this whole process. I mean, in this dream, this therapist, which is dying herself, right? And (laughs) I mean, you know, I I wasn't dying, but I think there was a part of me that did die, you know, when he died. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that, you know, makes me sad think about that, but it's, it's just real, you know, it's Mm -hmm. my, my little brother died. So, yeah, yeah. So I think it really, um, it really felt deeply emotional, deeply personal, spiritual, also saying something about how, you know, we have all these tools (laughs) to help us try to heal and get through things and sometimes it doesn't work out and that there's you know another another thing happens and people die and how do we come to terms with that what do we believe around that
0: and it feels i mean as i'm listening to you it feels like the dream was such a profound tool i mean it was a mm. it was a gift to call it a tool almost right it makes it sound too
1: mundane it sounds yeah. like an extraordinary gift yeah my the teacher that um was uh, teaching this dream group that I was part of has said, um, his name is Robert Bosnick. And one of the things that he said about dreams is that he believes that dreams are our most profound creative, imaginative, imaginative ability. That is our probably most creative capacity. It's so
0: amazing because, of course, like the part of me that is, str- you know, striven to create things says, yeah, but you don't even have to work to make them. Right. How extraordinary is that?
1: Yes. That I think, most- right. That, that it's innate. And I think the, the work around dreams really is about listening to them. That's the work. It's the work. It's kind of tending to them. Um, it sounds listening, but also in some ways bearing them,
0: bearing yeah. the power of the image and where it takes us emotionally.
1: Right, really really giving, really allowing them to um, be as powerful as they are, allowing them to speak to us. It's the dream does the work on us. <laughs> oh, yeah. All we have to do is show up. Yeah. In a way. <laughs> yeah. If you can really listen, and, and sometimes, you know, uh, my experience with just dreams in general is that I I learn about different dreams that I have even years afterward. You know, years. this is years after I've had this dream. And, you know, working on it right now, presenting it, presenting it tonight, presenting it in my talk and my writing. Um, I learn things about it all the time. It evolves, mm-hmm. which is, that's that is creativity right there. Yes,
0: because yeah, I, I was so struck when I first read the dream and preparing to talk to you tonight. You know, the onion, of course, for me, you know, immediately brings up the image of tears because yeah. you know, we all cry when, yes. we, yeah. when we cut onions. Absolutely. And, um, it seems so, expl- you know, so directly a dream about mm-hmm. grief mm-hmm. and about something being finished. Yes.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. and And also about kind of knowing when to end. You know, in this dream, the the therapist, which is, she knows it's her time, and there's an acceptance there about knowing when it's time and how you prepare yourself. I mean, in some ways, it's also just a dream about preparing for something that we will all experience. And how do we do that?
0: So that, that raises the question for me. Do you feel that accompanying your brother as he was dying... Has it shifted how you think about your own death?
1: I I think what it... I mean, in some ways... Um, in some ways, I haven't thought about it at all. <laughs> you know, like I think like most of us, I like to imagine it out way in the future. A long and time from a now. A long time from now, exactly. But I guess I like to think that my... Um, my process with him and being really present to him, I hope that I can be present to myself and to the ones around me and to, to basically what I need during that time, you know, whether, I, whether it's what I need in terms of care, what do I, what do I need around me, but also internally You know, so listening to my dreams while I was with Roger and going through this, and then especially right after he died and the dreams that came up, um, I want to, I really hope to stay present to my own dreams during that time and learn, help them guide me in terms of what I need and what's right for me. Because there's a lot of decisions sometimes that we have to make, um, whether it's around a loved one's death or our own death. And, you know, Roger was faced with a lot of decisions and we were all faced with a lot of decisions around the time of his dying. Um, and I believe that, you know, as an inner voice, uh, dreams can help one with information about what one needs. So I find myself hoping that when that time comes
0: for you, Laura, that you'll have someone like you that you'll be safe, safe enough to tell your dreams to the way yeah. Roger did.
1: Well, I do.
0: <laughs> I'm glad. I, so I want to, we have time for another dream,
1: yeah. and I'd love to hear another one. Okay. So um, this this next one that I want to share tonight is um, a dream that I had um, sh- about a month or two months after um, the funeral, and... Two months after the funeral, it was spring, it was April, and we went on a vacation to get away. My husband, my daughter, and I went to the Bahamas, and it was a very healing, restful, restorative time. And I had this dream while I was there um, in this beautiful, beautiful Caribbean location, and... um, In this dream, and I'm going to tell this dream, I tell my dreams kind of in the the present tense, so saying that. I'm walking down a road, and I see my dog, my sweet black dog, Tua, catch a butterfly in her mouth. Tua, I yell, wanting her to drop the butterfly. She drops the butterfly, and I go to it and pick it up. Holding it in my hand, I see that its wing is torn. I cup it in my palm and look closely. It is dying. It is dying. Its small black body moves slowly in my hand, curling in on itself. Holding such a vulnerable creature takes an incredible amount of inner strength as I vacillate between squeamishness and determination. The fragility and eternal energy of the butterfly touches me deeply. I walk cupping the dying butterfly in my palm with Tua at our side to the veterinary clinic, which is very close by. We're in a back room a kind of a porch enclosed by large windows, very light and airy and empty. Suddenly, the butterfly morphs into a smaller silver light insect and flies around the room, banging into the windows, erratically darting like a trapped insect does. It wants to be released, so I rush to the door, open it, and watch the silvery light creature off into the green countryside till I can no longer see it. Mm-hmm. So, it's such a powerful
0: image that I can just feel you holding mm. this creature in your hand, mm. and feeling like squeamish and determined uh, at the same time.
1: Yeah, it's it, that was such a felt, um, a felt experience. You know, the the experience of waking from a dream. How if it can be so physical? It was a very physical uh, experience holding the this dying butterfly in my hand. And you know, I know a lot of people know this, but the butterfly is, um the Greek word for butterfly is psyche, and psyche is also the word for soul. So for me, this dream was very much about holding, being with the dying, my dying brother and his soul as he was dying. Just really being present and feeling how hard that was to be present with him and how um, I did feel determined to to really accompany him and be conscious and, and be real with him and myself and my family and I feel like I did that but it was also very painful it was very very painful there was so much sadness yeah, so much sadness.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm struck, too, because we think about butterfly. You know, butterflies are so often the image of metamorphosis. You know, from the caterpillar, there are sim- images of hope and transformation and new life born of you know coming from a caterpillar to this beautiful soaring mm. life. You don't, you never hear the story about the butterfly dying. Mm. That's not in the
1: story. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, it's striking yeah. to me. Yeah. How powerful
1: that is, sort of the other side of that transformation. Yeah. And and really butterflies do die. <laughs> they actually have very short I was lines. gonna say
0: fairly quickly as I understand <laughs> yes. it.
1: No, they do. Um, and it's part of all of our all of our journey, you know?
0: Right. So you know, you so you know that the word for butterfly in Greek has to do with the soul, which is feels so powerful and it feels like such a a moving image of the soul, uh, actually, in some ways, being transformed yet again and mm-hmm. being released, mm-hmm. being initially trapped, as you described it, banging against the windows, and finally yeah. being set off. Um, did did you struggle to make sense of this dream, or did it feel like its meaning was really available
1: to you? Um, I think I think I felt it. It felt clear. In a in a in a visceral kind of way, like I just knew, I knew because I had it when I was in this beautiful place in the Bahamas, and I had gone there for healing, and I actually met um, a woman there who was um, there to release her father's ashes after he died, and and I actually had this dream the night. That I talked to her the night that I met her and realized that she was there on this kind of healing mourning grieving journey as well, and I just knew it was about something being released um, it actually gave me a lot of comfort it kind of it kind of showed me the stages you know the the shock the shock of seeing my dog with this butterfly and what's you know what 's happening I think that was the shock of Roger dying um I think the pain of being with him and accompanying him on that, and then some of the relief that I felt actually when he actually died, some of the relief of the release because it just went on, seemed to go on for so long, and that was so painful. So, you know, I've worked with my dreams a lot, and it just felt like I I didn't have to go digging too far to really get, get what it meant to me
0: you know I'm struck in a way by both your dreams we're gonna have to stop in a minute but they both seem like such gifts that give you these beautiful images that can hold your grief and and offer real hope Mm. I'm struck you know that in the process of grieving that dreams can give you so much yeah so much and on that note we need to stop Laura thank you so much for being my guest on safe space thank you if, uh, if you're interested in being part of a dream group, in here in Portland, Rick Bouchard leads uh, dream groups on Tuesday evenings from 6.30 to 8.30. If you'd like to be in touch with Rick to learn about being in a dream group yourself, his phone number is 650-6450. That's 650-6450. My thanks tonight to Goober for mixing the sound and for Maurice Lennon for the music. Coming up next is Money Talks with Allison.
1: This program is brought to you with listener donations and an underwriting grant from the Sunday.